If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 to read the first 11 verses, I think the Romans passage I may refer to later, but I'll leave, leave that to your own reading. It's probably a passage that we're quite familiar with. Philippians chapter 3, in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, which is about the question, how am I right with God? How am I righteous before the Lord? Philippians 3, at verse 1, we hear the word of the Lord. The apostle writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. God's word. I invite you to turn in the Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 23 of the Catechism. You'll find it on page 224, page 224. The Catechism has now finished expounding all the articles of the Apostles' Creed, and now it's going to ask, what's the payoff of believing all that? Question 59, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? Answer that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. And then this question, central to the Christian life, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart." 
Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. So we confess God's truth. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that it would ring out clearly tonight, and that our hearts and gladness would embrace and rejoice over it. For truly you are God who is a Savior. And we rejoice to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. In his name we pray, amen. We come tonight, brothers and sisters, to the very heart of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And the gospel is news. The gospel is not do this, do that, and maybe God will accept you if you do enough. The gospel is news. God has done something, and so you are righteous before him. Someone has said that one of the greatest weaknesses of the contemporary evangelical church is a failure to be centered on the center of the gospel, a failure to be centered on the center of the gospel. And we know that's true, don't we, that that in so many places, the very essence of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has no longer become the main thing. It becomes clouded out by all kinds of other things, all kinds perhaps of programs or or other teachings, or the latest fad. And the very heart of the gospel, which is to be the heart of the Christian life, is is kind of pushed to the side or forgotten. Even worse, there are, of course, religions that that have lost the gospel altogether. What, What they promote as religion is an attempt of man to work his way up to God. In fact, all religions but Christianity proclaim some kind of works righteousness, that you, by doing, can work your way up to heaven. You can make yourself acceptable to God. Martin Luther was under that spell. The 16th century, Martin Luther living as the monk of all monks, trying to work his way to God. The Apostle Paul, Saul, in the days of his pharisaical righteousness, lived by this method of merit, human merit. But in any religion like that, not only is there no hope of being made right with God, but of course there's no assurance of salvation. How can you ever know you've done enough? How can you ever have peace with God? You simply can't. God is a holy God and we've offended this God and there is no amount of trying to do good that will ever cover over our sin. And our best works are stained by sin. How could we ever arrive at the kind of perfection that God would accept us? No, the cat is asked, how can you be righteous before God? How can you, a sinner, be right with a holy God? That's the question of all questions. And tonight, again, the good news. What we could never do, Christ has done. He's given his righteousness to us. Tonight we look at this wonderful truth of justification by faith alone. First of all, we see that we need this righteousness. We, we consider our own lack of righteousness. And then secondly, we look at that gift, the gift of righteousness that comes in Christ. And then thirdly, the question, how do we make it our own? How do we receive that? Well, if we're going to rejoice, then we have to realize that we need this gift and how badly we need it. We need to be righteous in order to be accepted before God, period. If we're not perfect before God, if we've committed a single sin, had a single wicked thought, spoken a single unkind word, then we are a sinner and the wages of sin is death. Plain, simple. 
Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could, who could stand before your bar of justice? Who could find acceptance in the court of God? And the answer is no one. In Romans 3, we didn't read it, but you know that passage. Paul says that there's no one righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all stumbled. We have poison on our lips. We are, by nature, a wicked people. That's the bad news. You can't rejoice in the good news unless you accept the bad news. Many would not accept the bad news. I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm a pretty good person. This is the mantra of American unbelievers. You can interview them. 99 out of 100 would tell you that they're basically good people. And the reason why is because they compare themselves to someone else, and compared to those people, I'm doing just fine. But the Word of God keeps saying, I'm not interested, God says, in comparing you to other people. I'm comparing you to myself, to my own holiness, to my righteousness, because I made you for myself. I'm comparing you to my law, and you fall short. Anything less than perfect righteousness brings us eternal death. The reason that many people are not concerned about a right standing with God, or they so easily assume that they've done enough good, is that they don't have a profound sense of who God is, His majesty, and His holiness. They don't tremble before God. They don't, they don't stand in awe of the one before whom angels tremble and cover their faces. They don't have a sense of, of the glory of God who created the heavens and the earth. And so sin is counted as a trivial thing. It's a small mistake. It's a miscalculation. We haven't grasped the gravity of our guilt and the reality of God's wrath. Many people pretend as if God doesn't exist. Or if, he's, if he does exist, he's just this grandfatherly figure in heaven who, who winks at sin. But then if some do confess that we have sinned, if we confess that our temptation then is to think that we'll pay our way out of it, right? I've, I've sinned, but I think if I work hard enough, it will cover that over. And so God's pictured as Lady Justice with a sword in one hand, but the, the balance scale in the other hand, and it's thought that though the, the one pan might be loaded up with all my sins, if I can load into the other pan... A lot of good things, I can balance it out. And so we think if I just put enough good in there, then my good will overcome my evil and God will accept me. But that whole idea that we can pay for our bad with our good fails completely. Saul had to come to see that. This is quite a personal passage, isn't it, that he writes here when he warns them against those who trust in the flesh. But he says, the reason I'm speaking against these dogs, these mutilators, is not because I don't have something in the flesh to boast. And if you want to boast in the flesh, I could do more than them. And perhaps Saul here, Paul, is telling us what he used to trust in. He lays out his spiritual resume. He was... A Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised, receiving the sign of the covenant from his youth, even on the eighth day as the law commanded. That's what he had. The very covenant promises. He's not a Gentile who had to be brought in from the outside. He was born in the, the covenant circle. In fact, he says, I was a tribe of, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's the one that Israel's first king came from, Saul. Perhaps Saul was named after King Saul. 
The tribe of Benjamin was one of the tribes that remained loyal, one of the only two tribes that remained loyal to the Davidic king, to David. Paul here says he could trace his lineage back to those faithful people. He was raised in a Jewish family. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He was raised in all the traditions. And concerning purity, he was a Pharisee. He was of that party, the separate ones who were devoted to the law, who took on extra measures, many, many more laws as a border around God's law. But as for zeal, he says, I went beyond all others. I persecuted. I tried to stamp out the name of Jesus in this, what he thought was a false religion. Before the law, I was blameless, he says. I outwardly, outwardly obeyed everything. And so he thought that he could earn his way. And he walked in self-righteousness. Many try that method, don't they? And if it's not that method, then it's the other method of trying to feel sorry enough or to do enough to atone for sin. Martin Luther in the 16th century, remember, was, was so frequently found in the confessor booth, confessing his sins to his confessor, even for hours on end, that, that his confessor finally told him to get out of here. And this is also tedious. This is also uninteresting, Luther. Go commit some real sin and then come back and confess it. But Luther was, was consumed with this, I must confess my sin. This is the way I must get saved, by confessing each sin. He even tried to torture his own body. And perhaps, as we see so many today, among young people engaged in self-injury and self-harm, maybe part of that is that feeling they possess as well, that I can't find acceptance. But you see... The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, had made a remarkable discovery by the time he writes this book. Remember what occurred on the road to Damascus as he had ridden out in such pride and self-righteousness, going to travel all the way to Damascus, days away to persecute the Christians, to stamp out this movement. And as he approached Damascus and it last could see the buildings and the spires. He was blinded by a light from heaven, knocked to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he cried out in desperation, who are you, Lord? And he heard the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And, and all at once, think about this, that the man who had built this mass of righteousness saw it crumbling to the ground, He'd been riding on his horse so tall in all of his zeal for the Lord. And now he finds out that why he thought he was doing the most righteous thing, he actually had been doing the most wicked, ungodly thing. He'd been persecuting God. And so now Paul the Apostle can say here in verse 7, what things were gained to me. All these things I had put in the prophet column, I now put in the, the loss column. I've counted them as lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's one big manure pile. All the things I boasted, all my, my Jewish lineage, all, all the works I accomplished, all my zeal, all my standing in the Pharisee party, it's all rubbish so far as my standing before God. 
And that's the place God brings his people to, isn't it? Apart from the conviction of God, the Holy Spirit, we are all trapped in self-righteousness. We all boast in what we've done. We all think we're good people. We all think we'll pay our own way. We all think that if I just bear some guilty conscience for a while, then I'm atoning for my sin. But the Spirit of God comes to convince us it's all rubbish. All rubbish. And in doing that then leads us to the righteousness that can stand before the bar of justice, the righteousness of Christ. Let's look at that secondly, the gift of Christ's righteousness. Verse 8, yes, I indeed also count all these things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. What a marvelous passage. The Reformers would speak of an alien righteousness, the the basis upon which God declares us righteous and accepts us being an alien righteousness by which to mean a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It's not a righteousness inside of us. It's a righteousness apart from us that's given to us. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't he? It's not my own righteousness I want by doing works of the law, but a righteousness that comes from God to me. In Romans 3, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely by his grace through Christ. What is justification? It's a word that we should know. Justification, very simply, it's the opposite of condemnation. If you go into a courtroom as the defendant, then there's a trial and you are awaiting the verdict and the verdict will be guilty or not guilty, guilty or innocent. You're only going, either going to be condemned or acquitted, justified. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is not some moral process by which God makes us pure and holy. That's sanctification. Justification is the legal declaration of God, the pronouncement of the judge, by which he declares you to be righteous, to be innocent, to be accepted by him. It's not a declaration about what's in our hearts or about our daily living. It's a declaration concerning what's in our spiritual bank account or our standing before the law of God. It concerns our legal status before God. Romans 3 says in verse 26 that God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And so God is at once just, that also means righteous. He's just or righteous and he's the justifier of sinners. How can these be? How can God be a righteous judge to declare a sinner to be righteous? And the answer, you know, is that glorious exchange. That something has happened at the cross. 
That what was in our account has been put in Christ's account. What was in his account has been put in our account. And so at the cross of Jesus, all of our guilt, all of our demerit was transferred to Jesus. And he bore that. Our sins were placed upon his head. Our guilt was laid upon him and he became the criminal in our place. And meanwhile, all of his law-keeping, all of his obedience, all of his righteousness was transferred to our account. Glorious exchange. Christ stood in our place and received the condemnation and punishment that belonged to us. We deserve the guilt. So that we now stand in Christ's place and receive the judgment that Christ deserved, which is to hear God say, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At the cross, our guilt was transferred to Christ's account. His righteousness transferred to ours. And so God writes in bold print for us this mysterious wonder. It must have caused the angels in heaven to gape in awe that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And so at the cross, the judgment of God against us that we would have faced on the last day, that would have carried us away to hell forever, came forward in time and met Jesus at the cross. The Holy One was condemned. By the judge, he was declared not righteous, guilty, He was condemned in our place so that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. Christ became what he never was before, a sinner, to make us what we could never become through our works, the righteous. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction of righteousness and holiness of Christ. Without any merit, without any earning, without any deserving, he credits to my account the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect servant. And that means that when God, the judge, makes the pronouncement that you are righteous, it doesn't rest on some flimsy foundation that you've done some good works or you're promising him you're going to live better from now on or anything like that. This declaration of the judge rests on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It's a reality. God doesn't speak a word that's untrue. God is not the wicked justifier of those who are in Christ. He's the just justifier. He's righteous in his judgment because he's declaring the truth. You are righteous. You are righteous in Christ. Remember Luther's phrase, simul ustis et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner. Luther was saying it's not that we're just or righteous once we quit sinning, but we in Christ are already just or righteous, though we are still sinners. Because the pronouncement of our justification does not concern the perfection of our heart or life. It concerns the perfection of the record given us before God's law, the righteousness of Christ credited to us, imputed to us. 
So we walk through this world as sinners, struggling against our sin, wishing we didn't sin anymore, but we are already righteous. It's such a striking thought, isn't it, that that the moment you believe on Jesus Christ, you are as righteous before God's eyes as you will ever be. The thief on the cross, having lived 2,000 years in heaven, is no more righteous tonight than the day he put his faith in Jesus in his dying hours. And a million years from now, when you have loved and worshipped God with a perfect heart in heaven, and you have enjoyed, served your God with perfection through the ages, you'll be no more acceptable to God than you are at this very moment if your faith is in Christ Jesus. That's a perfect righteousness. The apostle says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God. God has not seen fit to give us any other righteousness than his very own righteousness. The righteousness found in our Lord Jesus. The righteousness has already been tested. Tested. Christ has made entrance into heaven. He wasn't denied access. This righteousness has gone through the gates of heaven. It is tested and proven. And it's yours. And therefore, it's not a righteousness that's lacking and in need of any additions. Remember Dale Ralph Davis in one of his commentaries talking about, I think this is how it went, that in the days when cake mixes came out, box cake mixes came out, that, I hope I have this right, that originally... Everything was included in the mix, so all you had to do was add water. But some ladies wanted to feel like they were doing more, so then they took out the eggs and let the ladies add their own eggs. So they could add a little something and felt like, now I've made the cake. You see, that's how we do it sometimes, right? I mean, this righteous of Christ, that's pretty good, but, you know, I, I need a piece of this. I need a little glory. I want to I make the cake. And the scripture says you have nothing to add to this. It needs nothing and you have nothing to add. Your best works are filthy rags if you want to be judged on the standard of God's righteousness apart from Christ. You can't even add the eggs. It needs nothing. It's perfect. But how does it become mine? Well, finally tonight, the way of receiving this righteousness is by faith alone. Notice the apostle says it a couple times in verse 9, that I may gain Christ, and verse 9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Remember, there are two, two main issues of the Protestant Reformation, the reason we are not Roman Catholic tonight. First issue was the issue of authority. How can we know anything? And the Reformers said, sola scriptura, by, by the scripture alone, it's the ultimate authority. The words of popes and councils and synods and tradition are not equal to the word. The word is supreme. And then they took that word and said, how are we right with God? 
And they went to the word and the word said we are justified by faith. Only by faith. Only in Christ. Only of grace. Justified by faith alone was the rallying cry of the Reformation against the Roman Catholic teaching that we are justified by faith plus our own good works. Faith alone. Answer 60 of the Catechism, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Answer 61, and I can receive this righteousness and make it my own in no other way than by faith alone. Now, what is faith? Faith is to put your trust in Jesus. Faith is to turn away from all their help and say, I won't put my confidence in the things I've done. I won't put my confidence in the things I haven't done. I never did what he did. I won't put my confidence in my parents and their faithfulness. I won't put my confidence in my church. It's a good church. I won't put my confidence in anything but in Jesus Christ, the Savior. I will embrace Christ clothed in the promises of the gospel, as Calvin puts it. Flee to him. I'll call upon him. I'll trust in him. This is what faith is. Saul, Paul, was dramatically brought from one who hated the name of Jesus to the one who rejoiced over it, who could say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the, faith, and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith is not the basis of our justification. Faith does not earn your justification. Faith is just the instrument. I like comparing it to the hand of a beggar who merely reaches out, who merely opens his hand, who merely takes what's given to him. You see, God isn't selling the gospel. This righteousness is not for sale if you do enough good, if you're sorry enough for your sin, if you promise, really promise, from now on you'll be good. No. It's a gift. It's a gift. Many are too proud to receive the gift. The only way to receive the gift is confess that you need it, that you need it. Stubborn sinners like to pay their own bills. I can do it myself. From age one or two, no, mommy, I can do it. I can do it. But when the law of God shatters our pride, then we see of greatly we've sinned against God, how we've offended his majesty, how we deserve his wrath, and how there is absolutely no way to cover our transgressions. We need the gift. Justified by faith alone, but then the temptation comes to turn faith itself into the work. I'm justified by faith alone, but yep, I did the faith thing. And so we have question and answer 61. Why do you say that through faith alone you're righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. If I substitute faith as the one work that I must do to earn God's favor, then I've rejected God's gift of righteousness and I lose all assurance because how can I ever know if my faith is good enough? But if faith is nothing but the instrument, 
of receiving. It's nothing but the empty hand of the beggar. It's nothing but that dirty, filthy, thieving hand of the beggar. Then the one giving the gift doesn't look at the hand and say, boy, is that hand clean enough? Are those fingernails manicured? Is that arm raised out at just the right degree with with a noble posture? No. It's not about that at all. The one giving the gift is everything. The hand is nothing. If faith could save us, God would not have given his own beloved son to die for us and to keep the law for us. Faith is merely the believing receiving by which you reach out and say, God, I need your gift. I believe your promises. Grant me salvation. J.C. Ryle wrote, True faith has nothing whatever of merit about it, and in the highest sense cannot be called a work. It is but laying hold of a Savior's hand, leaning on a husband's arm, and receiving a physician's medicine. It brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing, It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. That's all it is. Not on account of the worthiness of my faith. My faith earns nothing. In fact, my faith is a gift from God. My faith is a gift from God. Jesus died to purchase for me the gift of faith. But by faith, we take hold of the whole Christ. By our little faith, we take hold of the whole Christ. In all of his obedience, and all of his law-keeping, in all of his suffering and death, and the full atonement of our sins, by the little hand of faith, the ginormous Jesus is ours, and all of his righteousness. By faith alone, not by works. Oh, the reformer said, it's not a lonely faith. The true faith is a faith that produces works. If you have a true faith, you will want to follow Jesus. You'll say with Paul, I want to to know Christ. I want to know his fellowship, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to him. But all of those fruits of faith are not the basis of justification. They're just the things being pulled in tow behind Justification. The basis of our standing is Christ. The basis of our peace with God is Christ's righteousness. And that's true from the first day of our Christian life to the very day we stand before God the judge. That this is our only hope and our only confidence and our only assurance, Christ, his righteousness. Do you have that confidence tonight? Do you, by faith, look away from yourself to Christ alone? No confidence in what you've done. No comparisons to other people because you didn't do what he did. But to Christ alone. For those of you who have embraced this truth for many years... Are you learning to appreciate more and more the grace shown to you? 
Are you learning to apply the reality of this standing you have in Christ in such a way that you live for God's glory? If you frequently get defensive, then in those moments, what are you trusting in? If you have to be so quick to defend yourself, then what are you resting on? If you can't open up to other people, or you find trouble confessing your sins to your wife or husband or children or parents or brother or sister, is it because you feel the need to justify yourself? If you are consumed with what other people think about you, the opinions other have, people have of me, the, what, what do people at church think? What do my friends at school think? What does my boss think? What does my teacher think? If these are the thoughts that control you, fear of people, then whose opinion are you living by? You have been declared righteous in the courts of heaven. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you are slow to confess your sin because you've committed the same sin again, are you thinking that Christ only satisfied for some of your sin? That his righteousness only goes so far? If you struggle to be thankful because of some of your struggles or pain in your life, have you lost sight of the big thing? But this is the issue of life. How can I, a sinner, stand before God and now you've received the good news that you stand in Christ accepted by God, loved by God? Paul began in chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Have you pondered your justification this week? Have you meditated upon this reality? Has it brought joy to your heart? Have you sung before God? Have you come in prayer before God and said, this is amazing. I'm accepted by God. I am as righteous in your eyes as your own son is, for I'm clothed in his righteousness. Are you working out in your life the joys, the realities, the understanding of what God has given to you? Are you learning to count all the things in which you might trust, in which you're tempted to trust, as mere rubbish? That you may be found in Christ not having your own righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God, in Christ, received by faith alone. This is a glorious doctrine. This was a truth worth splitting the church over or worth leaving the Roman Catholic Church. Because this, dear brothers and sisters, is the heart of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanksgiving. What a wonderful thing you have given to us in Christ. Give us the faith to take hold of Christ. Give us the continued faith to count this gift as everything. And so, God, may we go forward rejoicing, glad, that no matter the opinions of men, in the courts of heaven, we are accepted. O Lord, let us rest in your love for us, your glorious acceptance. We give you praise for our perfect Savior, who is willing to take our place so that we could have his place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.